keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The dignity of man. How much freedom is necessary for dignity? And what does freedom mean if people are constrained by their very, very difficult economic situation? How much freedom really is there? You've heard the term democratic socialist. Ooh, scary, huh? Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders has called for, quote, a society where all people do well, not just a handful of billionaires. Some say this is pie-in-the-sky talk. It's unrealistic. These same skeptics insist we should instead just settle for the establishment's Hillary Clinton. She uses the old triumphalist boast of American exceptionalism. When at a, a debate, Bernie Sanders said that we ought to, quote, look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway, and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people, the party establishment candidate, Hillary Clinton, turned to aggressive nationalism. We are not Denmark, she said. We are the United States of America. Our guest today, acclaimed author Ann Jones, said that when she heard Bernie Sanders refer to the success of those Scandinavian countries, quote, I was all ears, waiting for Sanders to spell it out for Americans, which he did not do. Today, we'll take a good look at the realities of democratic socialism in those countries, particularly Norway, where our guest went to write about after her long, rather amazing stint in Afghanistan. Thank you for being with us, Ann Jones. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Ann Jones is a writer and photographer who has reported extensively from Afghanistan since 2002 and is the author of several books. Her most recent book is They Were Soldiers, How the Wounded Return from America's Wars, The Untold Story. That's from 2013. Her previous books include War Is Not Over When It's Over. Kabul in Winter, which we spoke about, oh gosh, about 10 years ago. Women Who Kill, and Next Time She'll Be Dead. Jones has worked with women in conflict and post-conflict zones, principally Afghanistan, and reported on their concerns. An authority on violence against women, Ann Jones has served as a gender advisor to the United Nations. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times and The Nation. We last talked with uh, Ann Jones about 10 years ago on this show about her then-new book, Kabul in Winter. It's Quite a jump from one country to the other. What took you from Afghanistan to Norway? Well, part of it was a desire to get to a peaceful country uh, and uh, 
sort of give myself a break from uh, uh-huh. covering war zones. I'd also covered Iraq and the Congo and mm. the West African countries, and I was really fed up with with war. Um, and so I went to what is really the land of my ancestors, uh-huh. Norway, and uh, uh, in, it was a, such a dramatic contrast to... Afghanistan, because Afghanistan uh, is always comes out on these international evaluations as the worst place on earth mm. to be a woman or to uh, have children. And Norway is on the other end of that scale. It's generally considered the very best place to be a woman, to raise children, to grow old, you name it. Um, Norway is the place to do it. My goodness. It's all right. I'll have to ask this. Isn't it pretty cold up there? Um, actually, uh, it's uh, it's not much different from uh, the climate you have in in uh, New Hampshire or where I am in Massachusetts right now. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, it does. Of course, part of it, a big part of it, is above the Arctic Circle, and yes, that is very cold. <laughs> But that's other creatures besides humans tend to inhabit that area, I assume. Well, No, it's, uh, it's really? well populated by not only the indigenous Sami population, but lots of plain old ethnic Norwegians live up there, too. One mm-hmm. of the, that's one of the things that the Norwegian government does very well. It brings all the same advantages that are enjoyed by people in the big cities to people in the most remote areas of the country. Wow. How, yeah. How, how do they do that? I mean, there are some remote areas. How, how do they bring it? Are there like uh, health centers and uh, various different yeah. uh, facilities like that? Everywhere? Yes. The welfare system serves the entire country. And also because, um, you know, they have this national system of setting wages and working conditions. Uh, where every year, the um, first of all, almost everybody belongs to a trade union of some sort, and uh, they have a national organization of trade unions and a national organization of business enterprise. And every year, representatives of those two umbrella organizations meet to work out uh, wages and working conditions, working standards, for the next year or so. And that means that they're able to set wages for the entire country. So if you're a nurse or a teacher or a plumber in the capital city, Oslo, uh, and you want to take, <laughs> take a turn in the, above the Arctic Circle, you go up there and make the same wages. So, uh, you know, it's not... In this country, a lot of the smaller cities and smaller towns are really cut off yes. from a lot of advantages. And Norway's more centralized just to make sure that doesn't happen. Wow. So we like, most of us like the idea of democracy, at least those of us who are not in the 21st century Republican Party. Uh, I don't think they like <laughs> democracy particularly at all. But it sounds like what you're talking about is not just socialism, which we'll get into, but but actual democracy where people can participate in decisions that affect their lives. Is that right? 
Well, democracy is their focus. Um, that's what they strive for hmm. uh, all the time. But they define, uh, you know, it, it, this is kind of funny because we use the same vocabulary right. in Norway and here, but many of the words mean quite different things because of the way they're implemented differently. So when they talk about democracy, they're also talking about uh, equality, economic, social, racial, gender, every form of equality you can think of. That has to be part of democracy because they believe you cannot have a true democracy unless everybody is as close to perfectly equal as you can possibly make them. Now, now wait a minute. Here in America, yeah, there's, there's rich people, there's poor people. There used to be a big middle class, not anymore. But is it, I mean, people strive to get wealthy here, at least in terms of money. When you say equality, is there, if people want to get really wealthy, can they still, or is that verboten? They have a few uh, wealthy people and uh, even uh, a handful of billionaires. Uh Uh, But billionaires are not much respected there because if you become a billionaire, it kind of indicates you're Mm -hmm. a bit greedy Mm -hmm. and uh, not as cooperative as (laughs) as you might be. So they really really value uh, cooperation and um, they they certainly don't want to be subjected to the kind of tyranny of the marketplace that uh. Americans are. You know, we think of equality here as equal opportunity, and we talk about the American dream, and everybody has a chance to uh, start up a business and make a good living and so on. And... Uh, if that was ever true, it's it's not really true anymore. Most American startups are just one person trying to make a living when they can't get a job, mm-hmm. uh, and a great many of them fail very quickly. Um, and so we're always subject in this country to the tyranny of that marketplace and the tyranny of the profit motive. We yes. have to try to take advantage of this so-called opportunity and make a living for ourselves. Whereas in social democracy, the fact that you have um, a very generous universal welfare state that takes care of health care and education and care of the elderly and all of those things uh, really frees you from the profit motive and frees you from uh, the tyranny of what we call the free market, which mm. of course is, is rigged. It's not free at all. Yeah. Um, so you're you're freed of that concern and you're able to do whatever you want to do with your life because no matter what you undertake, you know if you do want to start a business, you can do that, and if you fail. It's not a big deal because you know all through that whole process that whatever happens to you and your business, your family is well taken care of. Your kids will be educated. The whole family will still have health care. 
you'll still uh, have the place where you live. You know, it's not a it's not a disaster because the whole country has your back. Hmm. Hmm. Very very interesting. And you talk about the tyranny of the of the free market. There are people who. I've been amazed who who practically worship the free market and they feel like if it doesn't you know generate a profit it's not worth doing. There are people who really treat the free market as almost a religion which is just mind-boggling to me and I mean if you talk about freedom as you're saying Ann Jones how free can somebody be if they have to struggle for food and decide between paying the mortgage or paying the electric bill things. I mean, that's not freedom as far as I can tell. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is author Ann Jones, talking about uh, uh, democratic socialism uh, and what it's really like. And, you know, Bernie Sanders envisions, quote, a society where all people do well, not just a handful of billionaires, unquote. We have heard people in the established uh, Democratic Party call it pie in the sky. Uh, but we've heard Denmark and other Scandinavian countries as being described as some of the best places to live. Why, why do you think Hillary Clinton would so strongly proclaim we are not Denmark? D- does she know about this stuff, do you think? Well, uh, I, I began to wonder during that debate where this came up uh, how much either one of those candidates knew Good about how social dem- democracy actually functions. Um, because Bernie didn't have it quite right either. Uh, and it's very hard to talk about in this country because socialist is such a dirty word. Yes. And uh, even though, of course, we have socialized yeah. systems in this country. Too, Tremendous. Some, yes. of the, some of the best, of course, uh, I'm part of one of the best of them, Medicare, sure. which the Republicans keep sniping away at, trying to make it worse than it than it is. Um, and to me, um, you know, I think the notion of Bernie Sanders' notion of uh, just making it Medicare for all mm-hmm. is uh, is a wonderful solution. But in order to do that, you know, you have to have a whole system. You can't just have a policy. You can't just say we're going to we're going to make it Medicare for all. But Bernie is talking about the other side of that system, and that is where you get the money. And of course, the Scandinavians get that in a couple of ways. Mm-hmm. But one important one is um, uh, taxes. They have um, a high, but not really as high as some of our rates even, hmm. uh, progressive tax for everyone. And um, that is the, what generates the wealth for, uh, to fund the universal health care system. And because everyone gets uh, a very good wage, and because the wages are pretty equal across the board, that, you're talking about a lot of money that can go into funding that universal welfare system. We would need to sub- substantially change the way we um, do our taxes in order to get money from the people who are making and uh, making the highest amounts and mm-hmm. keeping it in their pocket or 
um, snugging it away offshore right. somewhere right. and just removing it from our economy altogether. Yeah, yeah. Well, but people, I'm sure, would say, well, if we have high taxes, that will really slow down the economy. It'll, it'll kind of put a stop to economic growth and be a disincentive for people to be in in the market and would not help the economy if we have, you know, really high taxes. Of course... No, just the reverse is true. Just the reverse is true. If you have those high taxes and you use them to establish um, a, a universal system of welfare, and let me just say universal means for everybody, it's not just for people in need. Right. It's a right of all citizens. So if you use the money to make sure that all citizens are able to get a free education and free health care and, and all of that, and especially if you make sure that people get a decent wage. I'm not talking about minimum wage right. or a raised minimum wage. I'm talking about a real decent living wage, hmm. then people have money in their pockets and they go out and spend on on things, and that's yes. what keeps the economy going. Well, you can't, this economy is not running well no. at this point, except for a very tiny, tiny uh, number of people. Yeah, it's amazing how small it is and how much of the nation's economic wealth that those that tiny group of people has. And of course, I happen to think that Franklin Roosevelt got it right by implementing Keynesian economics, which is, I think, what you're talking about. When people, when we have a middle class, like we used to have, even under Eisenhower, that great socialist, uh, people could buy stuff. When you have more people with more money in their pocket, that spurs demand, and that, I think, you're absolutely right, is good for the economy. I wanted to ask, yes. in the last half of the 20th century, the world was dominated by the intense struggle between the capitalism of the West and the U.S. and the communism of the Soviet Union. And you look at where Scandinavia is on the globe, there's this physical location. How has that impacted its political direction, do you think, being right smack in the middle between the two? Yes, well... It was influenced by both, because it is right there in the middle, but it didn't settle for any one of those things. It didn't settle for communism, and it didn't settle for capitalism either. It tried um, to find a way uh, through the middle, and it succeeded in doing that. And part of it was because uh, they had very strong cooperative societies already uh, in those countries, and they just extended the reach of those cooperatives. And at the same time, you had uh, a long political struggle between um, the socially socialist-influenced labor side of things and then, on the other hand, the capitalist uh, free enterprise people on the other side, but they worked it out together uh, over the course of uh, a few decades there, hmm. and actually by the by the time of the New Deal, 
in this country, Norway uh, and the other Scandinavian countries had already discovered this middle way, which is a mixed economy that combines capitalism on the one hand with this um, universal welfare system uh, run by the government. I think that's largely what Bernie Sanders is talking about, and we've come close to that uh, model occasionally in our history, but it's never completely happened. It certainly, I think we came pretty close under Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson was carrying that forward, kind of a mixed economy. And you're, I mean, we certainly have lots of socialism here, fire departments, police, uh, uh, you know, uh, traffic lights, for example, the national park system, which was created by uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. That That's part of, of, you know, a mixed economy. And you say that in Norway, capitalism serves the people. And could it be called a more cooperative capitalism. And what what might that mean? Is that what we call the Nordic model? It's part of that Nordic model, yes. That It's just that the capitalist ventures are regulated um, through legislation that the government decides upon, the democratically elected government. Um, and um, so it, it's not just given this the free hand, the way the way it is here, uh, you, you know. For example, um, in this country now, uh, the gap between the wages of a worker and the wages of the head of the corporation in which that worker yeah. serves yeah. may be over four hundred times. Right. The the CEO may be may be making over. 400 times as much as the average worker. Mm-hmm. In in Norway, in the biggest industry, I think the CEO, and that's the, the huge oil company, I think the CEO may make 14 times as much as the average worker. But in most businesses in Norway, the CEO will make between four and maybe eight times as much as the average worker. Now, that's government regulation, and it's regulation agreed upon by the workers' unions and by the, the owners' and uh, associations that think that that is just fair. They, they just can't believe how uh, enormous that gap is in the United States and in many other countries, because to them, that's simply not playing fair. I I don't think it's particularly moral either, quite frankly, to have a very few people with more money than they can possibly use. And parenthetically, I think driven uh, obsessively for more money because it doesn't, having a lot of money, okay, you know, I'm sure it's nice, but after a point, you, what can you know? And to to be you know, it's pathological. I I hope someday there'll be a a psychological treatment for that bizarre behavior. It doesn't make you any happier. And I've heard I don't know how happiness with regard to this stuff is measured particularly, but I have heard Denmark, uh, in particular, referred to as one of the happiest places in the world. You know, do do people have? It sounds like people have enough, and 
do they feel free enough? Do, do they, you know, America, allegedly the land of the free, do citizens not feel constrained by this massive government in, in Scandinavia and Norway? What about their, their sense of freedom? It's, it's not a massive government, and it's, it's a government of the people. They elect it, and they change it as they see fit. And also, they, they have many more political parties than we do. They have that sounds good. 21 political parties in Norway right now, and each party represents a certain group of interested citizens. For, uh, there's a party that primarily represents the farming community, for example, and there's another party that represents uh, Christians, for, for example. Mm-hmm. And then the largest parties are one that is traditionally associated with labor and one that is um, calls itself conservative, but not in the American sense. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it, it's into neoliberal economics. It's genuinely conservative. So when you vote, you vote for a party because you know what that party stands for. You don't vote for a personality. You vote for the party. And generally, several parties get into Parliament. There are eight in the current Parliament, and uh, they represent the range of interests, and uh, they have to uh, form a government and negotiate with each other and cooperate on doing their best for the country. And so... Everything is done in this kind of slow, cooperative, consensual way and always with the good of everybody in the country in mind. So it couldn't be more different from here. And and there was a wonderful speech by somebody I really like, I think it's obvious, Franklin Roosevelt in 1936, where he said that uh, something like the corporations uh, own the government uh, but uh, he would like to see a day where the corporations worked for the common good, you know, and that they, they had a responsibility to the common good. Nowadays, it seems like government is just kind of their, their handmaiden. Their, the government is a wholly owned subsidiary of a few powerful special interests. And Bernie uh, does certainly talk about that. Um, and Well, actually, I, I think... I hate to say this, but I think it's a little worse than that because political scientists um, have now determined uh, this study's been all over all over the web. The Princeton study um, that officially the United States now is classed as an oligarchy, not as a democracy anymore, Who's... because the the wealthy have so much influence. It's not just that they buy Congress people through campaign contributions, but they have so much uh, influence um, with all sorts of people in the government that they actually affect policy decisions before they uh, they ever are yeah. brought before Congress or enacted into law. That, so that, in in effect, this election is really... Uh, in a real sense, it's a kind of performance because mm. whatever um, Bernie Sanders may propose, right. um, Hillary Clinton may be more on the right track when she says there's a lot of this you can't get done. But what's not clear, I think, is that the reason you can't do a lot of it 
is because there are stronger forces than the will of the electorate, than the will of the voters who shape the policies in this country. And the people in Norway and other Scandinavian countries, you know, we have their term citizen here, which our founders intended to mean that we all can, we have the ability to participate in self-government. Is there, the, it sounds like with all those different parties, there is very much a sense of citizenship. And I, it seems to me that one of the uh, seeds of the Tea Party movement was that people feel like this is not our government. We don't have, we're powerless. And people, I think, largely accept their powerlessness here in America. I'm sensing it's rather different in Norway. Yes, absolutely. There's very strong involvement in, uh, in government. Um, it's very strong among the youth. Hmm. Uh, and all the way through. And, and uh, you know, here we talk about the special interests as though they are bad things. In Norway, they just recognize that, if, of course, uh, you know, a farmer up north has different interests than a guy down south who may be a fisherman or people, professional people living in the capital. Of course they have different interests. They're living in different ways. Mm. But all of those interests then must be represented in the government, not discounted. Uh, so, again, that's where that cooperation comes in. And thinking about everybody and making sure that everybody um, it, it gets into that same boat. They may not all be sitting on the same seat. <laughs> Hmm. You have to keep things in balance to keep it going, but hmm. they all have to be there uh, for government to succeed. Yes, we all have to uh, be able to participate and feel like we have a, a stake in it. I'm just curious, it's a little bit off subject, but you know, here in America we have a head of state and head of government in one person. So the person running for president has to be kind of a celebrity, sort of a you know, head of state is is kind of the figurehead, and that in in some countries like the Queen of England, she is the head of state, but somebody else is the head of government who doesn't have that you know star power. Personally, I think that that necessity of star power really corrupts things a bit. Is there a separate head of state and head of government in uh, Norway and in the other Scandinavians? Um, well, they still are monarchies, all of them. So a head of state, um, yeah. Uh, so they have uh, a head of state yeah. um, who is actually quite useful in mm-hmm. in providing uh, a continuity. Yes. And then they have parliamentary systems of government mm-hmm. so that you vote for the parties that go into parliament and then whoever has the majority has to work out um, sure. uh, cooperation with other parties in order to form a government and present that to the head of state and get that okayed. But, you know, what I love about Norway is they were the last country to become independent of the Nordics. Um, they only got their independence from Sweden in 1905. And um, so they bo- once they got independent, they voted on what kind of government they wanted to have. And one mm. of the questions was, do you want to be a monarchy or a republic? And they voted to be a monarchy. They elected a king. And uh, 
and they chose a, a, a member of the Danish royal family who was well mm-hmm. connected with the British royal family. Yeah. So they <laughs> played a little politics here, and they at, invited this man to become their king and said there were two requirements. He had to learn Norwegian, and he had to learn to ski. <laughs> and uh, he accepted, and they've had a very happy royal family ever since. And interestingly enough now, the crown prince married a, a, a single mother, and uh, their daughter will be next in line to be the Queen of Norway. You know, so it's a very kind of democratic royal family, but it, it serves a very real function. Well, I, I think psychologically, a lot of people kind of, you know, perhaps unconsciously yearn for some sort of royalty, like a king or a queen. Hollywood stars, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a big part of that. And, and when you mix up, you know, that kind of uh, uh, need, you know, like for royalty, uh, a monarchy, to, to have, the, as you say, that continuity, but when you mix that in with, with actual, you know, really participating in government, then it gets a little bit messy. I, I, I would have liked uh, back in the 1980s if we had had a King Ronald Reagan with no real power, but a Walter Mondale who could just run the government might have been better off. Not likely well, to happen here. Maybe so. <laughs> you know, we have a very inflated idea of, of celebrity and oh, yeah. monarchy um, because they, they really are a substitute for I think movie stars are a substitute yes. for what we don't have in our own lives. Um, yes. So uh, you know <laughs> that's what we're supposed to aspire to, but uh, very few of us ever get there. Well, that is true. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today. Very interesting stuff about Norway, Scandinavia. Author Anne Jones, who's who came from the hard times of Afghanistan to the uh, peaceful, beautiful, free times of Norway. That's very nice. You know, Americans, it seems, have a strong aversion to anything that looks like a nanny state. You point out that in Norway, caring for the children, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled became the basic responsibilities of the universal welfare state. And I can imagine... Uh, people I know recoiling in horror at that picture. Is this something different in the spirit of Norwegians versus Americans regarding attitudes on this being a government responsibility? Is it something like innate there, or is it something just sort of learned and, you know, people get used to it and acculturated to it? Well, we've been brainwashed here to to resist anything like that. Um, and And, I mean... <laughs> people who don't have enough money to get by still vote for Republicans, yeah, you know, know, who yes. are who are making off with all the all the big bucks. Um, so we're not very intelligent about this. I'm sorry to say. Um, if you look at how this developed in the Scandinavian countries and especially in Norway, it's simply logical. Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that they believe that to have a real democracy, everyone must be included on the same footing. It has to be equal. Well, they took a step that we tried to 
to take in this country and failed. And that that? is, they, they did away with that nuclear family that we still see as um, the, the basic way to, uh, uh, to, organize. to organize our society. Right. Man go, the man goes to work, the woman stays home and raises the children. Well, nowadays we know that most families have to be two-income families, but we still try to cling to that old uh, uh, form of family, And it's just not possible to do if you're trying to raise kids and hold a job and all of that at the same time. So that's a big part of the anxieties of of this country Mm -hmm. and the sense of being overwhelmed. Whereas in Norway, they recognize that this so-called nuclear family is very undemocratic, very unfair, because the man is going out and working for, for... wages, the woman stays home and works probably twice as hard Mm -hmm. for uh, an unpaid job. So the state recognized that if it wanted to get women into the workplace on an equal footing, it had to take over the unpaid jobs that she usually did at home. And that means um, taking care of the kids. They go to kindergarten Mm -hmm. from age one. It means giving the parents a chance to get their kids off to a good start. They have a full year taken in turn between the mother and the father, a full year of fully paid stay-at-home time with a newborn child. Um, Then the state takes over and provides kindergartens, and then from age six, school is free all the way through university. Um, and then they also take over those other jobs that women had in the home that they didn't get paid for, taking care of everybody who was sick, taking Mm -hmm. care of the elderly, Mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, Once those become publicly handled, that, that also means that you're creating more jobs, and a lot of women have moved out of the home where they weren't paid, and into working in healthcare or education or one of those social fields and getting well paid for it. Um, they're now about um, 90% of women work, uh, 80, almost 85% of women with children at home are working. And they can do that with ease, without anxiety, because the welfare system has their back. Well, that sounds like a dream, kind of, I must say. And obviously the right wing in America... Go ahead. um, I was just going to say, we have so many myths that come to mind here instantly to contradict all this stuff that I'm trying to explain. And one of them is that if if people get this public handout... They aren't going to have any incentive to work, and nobody's going to go to work. And um, I think this is one of the the most saddening uh, attitudes that I hear from Americans, because we've grown so used to this notion that you have to get out there and work and earn your living, that we think so many Americans 
are working in jobs they don't like, they don't want, they're not getting paid well enough for, and yet they have to keep working because they have to make money. And we come to believe that the only reason for working is to make money. Whereas if you can remove that, if you can free people from that demand of the marketplace, people can discover what it is they really want to do. And maybe it doesn't it doesn't pay as well as your boss. But you know, it's it's pretty close. And so you can go off and you know, be a painter if you want to. Be an artist if you want to. Art right. the arts are all subsidized in these countries mm, so that people can afford to devote their lives to uh, painting or music or writing. Um, mm. And everybody enjoys their jobs. You never meet anybody who doesn't like their job mm. because they, they've been free to choose what it is they want to do. Wow. Freedom. That that. It, it's it sounds like kind of a dream, and I remember in the uh, you know the optimistic days of the late '60s and early '70s, we we kind of looked at that. That you know, isn't there a next phase of of human development where you don't have to be wage slaves anymore? I mean, we 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 used to not even have weekends because you know the, the powers that be didn't value freedom to do to actualize yourself to be all that you can be. And it sounds like uh, the system there is working pretty well with regard to that, and that people can be more than just their jobs. Now, you know, people define themselves by, this is what I do, this is how I make my money, and that's it. And it's rare, all too rare, that people can be artists, musicians, uh, things like that. Sometimes they get to do it in retirement, but, you know, it makes society so much richer and people actually happier. And that's got to be worth, frankly, more than just money, I would think. And you talk about absolutely <laughs> f- freeing, you know, women. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I used to think that, you know, childcare should be just, there should be quality childcare available to everybody. Wouldn't that free up a lot of people and, you know, take care of kids well, too, and socialize? You know, we, we, did, we did try that. One of the things the feminist movement did yes. in the 60s was to push for, for universal child care. Yes. And Congress, if you can, people don't believe me when I say this anymore, but bipartisan Congress passed a, a multi-billion dollar bill for a network of child care facilities all across the country, not just for working parents, but for everybody. And Richard Nixon vetoed it in 1972, and it has never come up in Congress again. And you, you couldn't bring it to Congress no. today. You couldn't even bring it there. Maybe left. But at that time, everybody thought this was just a, a great and fair idea. But um, Nixon trashed that, and then, of course, we had Bill Clinton doing away with welfare, as we had known it ever since the administration of FDR. Mm -hmm. And that threw millions of uh, families, particularly with female heads of household, uh, into 
not just poverty, but they had to make a new category for it mm. called extreme poverty. Oh, my God. Uh, together with their kids. And, you know, when I talk to Europeans, uh, one of the things they have the most trouble understanding is how so many kids, it, it's at least one in four, some, some statistics say one in three children in this country live in poverty. We can't understand how we could allow that to happen. And, of course, you know, we got crime with kids, gangs, because their parents are out working, but they have no place to go. And, you know, money is very, very hard to come by. Sounds like if we had programs to deal with that, it would, in fact, deal with it. And, you know, we have, I I can't call them conservatives. They're the far right wing in America, which has become the Republican Party, is getting some traction, pushing back against women in the workforce, claiming kids are better off with at least one parent at home. It's an interesting observation regarding liberating women from the old stay-at-home role. Uh, You say, paradoxically, setting women free made family life more genuine. Say more about that, please. How did it make family life more genuine? Well, um, it frees up the kids. You know, we cling to this old belief that uh, you have to have that mother hovering over the kids. Well, the most famous helicopter mother in Norway in recent years has been the mother of Anders Bering Breivik, who was their their, uh, terrible homegrown terrorist assassin. Now, that doesn't, I don't mean to imply that every child who right. grows up with a, with a mother at home is going to turn into a, to an assassin. But um, there are, you know, these, these uh, cases of uh, you can't guarantee that mommy at home is going to make a child an ideal citizen. Hmm. Um, the, the advantage that the Norwegian children have, or Scandinavian children generally, is that they go off to these wonderful kindergartens, neighborhood kindergartens, um, at age one or a little later if they want to, but most go at age one, and uh, they're there a good part of the day. The parents don't work such long hours, so you pick them up in the late afternoon. Parents actually get a great deal of quality time uh-huh. with their kids. Hmm. Nice. And... Women's equality has long been established in Norway, and and you write that this has actually been a measurable boon to the economy. You say that quote this has in fact meant more to the Norwegian to Norwegian prosperity than the coincidental discovery of North Atlantic oil reserves. I'm sure that surprises many listening. Please explain that. Yes, most most people think it's just the oil <laughs> that makes Scandinavia. But, of course, Norway is the only country that actually has the oil, and um, and they uh, just put it into a trust fund. It's the, the labor of women uh, in the workforce at wages on a par with those of men that has made the big difference in the economy. It's what we were talking about before. You need a lot of workers making good wages and, uh, and then paying taxes into the government to keep uh, the, the systems in place that back them up. Hmm. And uh, did, I, I hear, you know, on the subject of kids and, and, you know, growing them up safe and healthy, 
um, you say that by the time in, in Norway, by the time kids enter free primary school at age six, they are remarkably self, self-sufficient, confident, and good-natured. Can you describe what that might look like, please? That's, that's pretty, uh, quite a, a picture there. By the time they're age six, remarkably self-sufficient, confident, and good-natured. How does that uh, uh, look? Well, by that time, they've had four or five years in the Barnahagen, the kindergarten, and they've learned to get along with uh, all kinds of other kids. Um, They usually have an assortment of teachers, both men and women, often in different colors or different sexual uh, 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 preferences. So you have an array of all kinds of people uh, teaching kindergarten, all very highly trained and qualified, of course. Mm-hmm. And so the kids are exposed to to uh, all sorts of grown-ups. They do a great deal of their education outside, wandering around town, going to all the museums, going to the forest. Um, they really get a, a great basic education before they're six years old. And they know how to look after each other, they know how to get along with all kinds of grown-ups. Um, they're, they're very mature little kids, but they still are little kids. They mm-hmm. have a great time uh, playing and, and just enjoying their life. And the kids take it very seriously. Mom and Dad go to work. The kids are eager to get to school. Boy, they don't like it if they have to stay home from school because they're sick or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a little different from a lot of people here, that is for sure. What about uh, crime? Is there much crime in Norway? Well, there's crime, of course. These are human beings. Uh, But uh, I think it's at much lower rates um, than you would expect in in most countries because, of course, that even in crime, that profit motive has kind of been undercut, you know, because... Why would you go out and steal when you've got everything you want? Absolutely, um, absolutely. So it's it's pretty peaceful, and uh, it's only just recently, um, uh, in in view of some problems that have come up because of a lot of illegal immigration that is causing such a problem in throughout Europe these mm-hmm. days. It's only recently that some of the Scandinavian police have started to carry weapons. Mm. But so far, I don't think anybody's actually had to use them. Uh, And there's a strong protest against this from the public. They don't believe their police should be armed. Boy, is that ever different. My goodness, people worship guns here. I mean, there's a whole religion for, for guns equals freedom. Wow, is that ever a different definition of freedom from freedom well, from... The, you know, all these countries are, have a lot of farmers and a lot of hunters as well. Sure. Um, they know about guns, they, but they, have, they don't have handguns and things like that. They don't believe in, well, in and... that kind of stuff, and they can't understand why, why people here talk about having guns to defend their right to hunt. They just... Yeah. They, they think that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny, but a lot of people get killed. And back, I just wanted to get back on the subject of, of bringing up kids. You know, here in America, there's a tremendous emphasis on sports for kids at younger and younger ages as time has gone on. The reason for this is paying for college. 
You get scholarships if you're good at sports. And especially with American football, the kids are subject to concussions and other injuries. Is there as much, I mean, what about sports with regard to kids there? And, you know, the college, I guess, is free. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to push kids into uh, into playing sports that can be injurious. But they must. You know, they, well, of course, nobody plays American football right. over there. They, no. If that's not football to them. Um, but sure, kids play sports. Um, um, both girls and boys. And in fact, uh, of course, winter sports are huge over there. And uh, oh, sure. all, the, all those countries figure very prominently in the Winter Olympics all oh, yeah. the time. So. Um, kids are out skiing. They get their first pair of skis when they can start toddling around. Before that, mm-hmm. they are pulled along behind in a little in a little sled that's made especially. It's like a you know a, a baby buggy nice. for for the baby that you tow along behind when you go cross country skiing. So um, sports are very big with children and adults alike. There's a strong emphasis in all of these countries on spending a lot of time outdoors, a lot of hiking, mm. a lot of a lot of skiing, swimming, water sports, all of that. And partly because of that, or maybe largely because of that, all of the Scandinavian countries are among the most far advanced and innovative in their environmental concerns and the development of uh, safe forms of energy and renewable energy and sustainable developments of all kinds. They really have taken the lead in that. Mm. And again, they're supposed to be one of the happiest uh, areas of the world. i got to ask, for traditional freedom-loving Americans who really treasure our sense of freedom, how do you think, would we feel comfortable in Norway and Scandinavia, do you think? Yes, yes, you'd feel good. You'd feel good. In fact, you'd probably wonder why nothing terrible was happening. You'd probably get <laughs> bored because there weren't enough disasters. Um, the, most, the most common criticism of, of all the Scandinavian countries is that they can be boring. Um, I, I never found them, so there's all sorts of things going on. But hmm. uh, But they do feel very different and... And people who come from other parts of the world will tell you that, that there's a different feel to it. Um, people are just not um, not worried nice. at, at all. And people are also very equal. So you don't get this kind of mm. bowing and scraping that we mm. get in some other parts of the world. And the f- They're great, great places to live. And the fierce um, competition. Do you think if more people, more Americans, understood that what you're talking about might be some of what Bernie Sanders means by democratic socialism. There'd be less worry about it. It seems like people don't get it. They hear the word socialism and they stop thinking. Do you think if people understood it better, they'd be less afraid of... Yes, yes. They're afraid of that word socialism, but that's what, that's what the Cold War propaganda has taught us, you know, and we just have to make an effort to relearn that. Uh, think of the word social. Um, and we're all social beings. Uh, we need to cooperate. You know, we need to have that image of 
a cooperative village in our minds and think about that. Nobody wants to be, except maybe some of these sociopathic billionaires, nobody mm-hmm. wants to be all alone as uh, or outstanding in that way. And so mm-hmm. it's not it's not normal, you know, and they do say that that uh, a lot of these billionaires are indeed sociopaths at yes. heart. And certainly in these in these uh, electoral debates, we've seen an enormous display of, uh, pardon my sexism now, but of Macho. male narcissism. Yes. And this incredible exercise of egos yes. that's associated with wiping out other people, you know, deporting right. people, Putting banning up a wall. people, bombing people. Uh. It's just uh, extreme... It gets associated with militarism and guns and and uh, and fear of others. Yes, it's the distrust that is fostered uh, here and has been fostered throughout this election campaign. You know the yeah. Southern Poverty Law Center reports the increasing rise of hate groups yes. in this country during the Obama presidency, mm-hmm. not because of the president, no. but because of his race and yes. what it brought out in uh, the racists of this, of this country. And this, this is what fragments our society, and we need to take some, some steps to, uh, to move the society in the other direction. That, of course, is what Sanders is supporting. If it, it, these structures determine how we live our lives and how we think about others. And we have a choice between trying to live cooperatively and with trust of others or living in fear. And most of these big blowhard narcissists are, you know, in their heart, they're scared little kids. Why else does a man stand up and bluster in that way? That's not what it means to be a, a man. So we can have healthier communities. It can be done. It is not pie in the sky. Uh, fascinating to talk to you. There's a, a website you can point people to to find out more about your work? Well, um, this article um, that I just did explaining social democracy is uh, at tomdispatch.com online. Uh, a shorter version is also at The Nation online. Bill Moyers has it on his site as well. Well, thank you so much. We have a lot to learn. Thanks very much uh, for talking once again. And Jones, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bert. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And now one of the more famous exports from Scandinavia, ABBA. <laughs>